as our listeners know, this season has been about what it means to be human. And as a InterVarsity podcast, our ministry in part is involved in the mentorship and discipleship of students. And so we would be remiss if we didn't talk about one of the most important issues in our era, which is human sexuality. We've asked Jessica Pafumi, who is our human sexuality resource specialist, to join us for this podcast to help frame the episode. And her department sits within another department in InterVarsity called Discipleship and Leadership. So I want to turn to you, Jessica, and ask, as you've had a chance to listen to this episode and thinking about the work that you do helping our students be discipled, what do you think about this topic? What do we need to know? How do we place this in the wider conversation about following Jesus? Yeah, it's great to be here. And I think as I was listening to the conversation, I just recognized that the work that we do on, in the field around human sexuality is it requires a lot of humility to be able to love students well, to hear their stories, to care for them well, as well as like our staff and their experiences. So I appreciated just the posture of humility. I think David said, having friends that are different than you is a sign of humility. And I couldn't agree with that more. These conversations just require that posture. So human sexuality is a part of all of our stories in some way or another. Thanks. That's so helpful. And, you know, I know that your department, Discipleship and Leadership, is really focused on the entire range of discipleship needs for students in this generation. Where does human sexuality sit within that larger topic? Within Discipleship and Leadership, we are creating a what we would call a human sexuality collection, which are resources that are pastorally led in terms of coming to the conversation of human sexuality very holistically, recognizing that every single one of our students has an experience of sexuality. And we want to help them, yes, understand that theologically, but also like truly lead pastorally in the way that we care for, listen to, and love students well, and let those conversations be shaped and guided by the Holy Spirit as the spirit moves and we trust that the spirit will move in each student in discipling around this part of their life. Yeah, so that's kind of what we're doing. We're trying to create, number one, our main resource is called The Big Story of Human Sexuality. That will be public in the playbook come spring 2023. And then off of that, there are resources that are particular to the subject of LGBTQ plus SSA students and to help in terms of reaching those students, doing discipleship around that topic. But that is just like one topic around human sexuality. There's so many other parts of our sexuality that we could talk about. And this episode focuses on just one part, I would say. But I think it's important to have like a holistic approach to this conversation because we all need discipleship around this area of our life. Thank you so much for the resources that you and your department are creating, couldn't agree more. Holistic approach is certainly needed. I think in this small section of the topic, our two speakers do a great job. So in addition to holism, your early comments about humility, we can't stress that enough. I think that they have done their best to demonstrate a humble conversation, and I hope we can all do the same. Before this episode, we have asked Mark Yarhouse and David Bennett 
to be our two speakers. Mark Yarhouse is the Dr. Arthur P. Retch and Mrs. Jean May Retch Endowed Chair. That's a title. And he's a professor of psychology at Wheaton College, where he also directs the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. He's a core faculty member in their doctoral program in clinical psychology. He's written a lot of books, including IVP books. One of them includes Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Modern Psychopathologies, Understanding Sexual Identity, Sexuality, and Sex Therapy. So many different books that he's authored, along with numerous articles. We also interviewed David Bennett, who is a theologian from Sydney, Australia. He recently completed his PhD in theology at the University of Oxford, and he hopes to be a fresh voice on the topics of love, desire, and sexuality to show how people can flourish in Christ. His first book is called A War of Loves, and it describes his own story from an atheistic gay activist to becoming a follower of Jesus. And so it's important to note that this conversation comes from one particular perspective. I think as we minister on campuses, we want to create access for student communities who maybe have traditionally had barriers to receiving the good news of Jesus based on their experience of sexual orientation or gender. And our hope is that we can offer perspective that this is good news, even from yeah where we're coming from. And we hope that as you hear Mark and David, that you will hear how Jesus has worked in LGBTQ SSA people's lives through this sexual ethic. Enjoy the episode. One of the things that we like to ask all of our guests is how you describe what you do to people who who aren't familiar with your with your field at all. So maybe if you're at a dinner party or traveling, you know, on an airplane or a train, how do you describe what you study and why do you love it? Or how do you see God at work in that? So maybe David, we could start with you. Well, my thesis really starts with comparing holy virginal women to gay people today. So that's a very interesting contrast. <laughs> and the kind of crazy controversy in the fourth century over holy virgins, and then how that intersects with why we're having the moment we're having over questions of sexuality and gender. So that's what I would say. <laughs> you just dive right in there and yeah. yeah. Another way of saying it is, I suppose I'm looking at one of the most fundamental aspects of being human, which is desire. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to just spend my time looking at in everywhere from ancient philosophy right through theology, the first century to now, and then also the debates around desire today. In fact, I'm really looking forward to talking to Mark about psychology as well, which is a new field I feel I may be entering into with that. But yeah, that's that's where I've started with the doctorate. Great. Thank you. Excited to get into more about that. Mark, how would you describe what you do to others? Yeah, nothing quite as as exciting as David's description. That was that was terrific. I would say that I study the intersection of sexual or gender identity and religious identity. So particularly when people are Christians and they're navigating questions around same-sex sexuality or a discordant gender identity, I look at just how they how they 
how they carry those parts of themselves, how they relate those parts of themselves, what that looks like for them as a person of faith. That's usually the way I would describe it. You both hinted about, you know, obviously that this is a contentious topic where people experience a lot of difficulties, lots of layers of difficulty, and that they experience things differently and define things differently. And so I'm wondering, because as we get started and in this kind of contentious space, what are some ground rules that you think are helpful for a conversation like this or, or terms that you think need to be clarified or defined before we get started? I think one of my major values or things that steers me and keeps me anchored in the space is humility as a essential virtue. So like, don't even try and enter the conversation if you're not willing to have humility, like it will end up just just hurting other people. I think pride is really easy in the conversation to kind of, I know I've struggled with that myself at points, you know, where you just want to be politically or socially vindicated with your view and to get that sense of validation and walk away rather than everybody really does have a story and everybody's story has an incarnational importance to wisdom and to, to learning and that you can actually learn from someone who radically disagrees with you or might even prejudicially hold you at arm's distance. I think it's important to have that humility. So I'd say that's really important. Can I, can I ask you to take us deeper into what humility means? So does humility mean, for example, uncertainty? Or can someone who's very assured of their convictions also be humble? How would you, how would you describe that interaction? Well, I think, you know, we could go to C.S. Lewis who says, you know, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less, which I think is a nice spin. The other person I think of is Augustine, who's my specialism. And, you know, he was dealing with all of these kind of pride within his own pastoral situations. And the fourth century and a lot of holy virgins thinking they're better than everybody else. They've got the pure ethic. They found the way to heaven and the kind of marrieds are these kinds of lower Christians, which is represented like by Jerome at the time. And then Jovinian who was saying, actually, there's no extra reward for people who are holy virgins. Like everyone's just equal. And both of those views really were, were enshrined in a kind of prideful way and fought each other. So I think one of the marks of humility is uh, is that you don't end up destroying the other. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you don't end up setting yourself up against the other. You might disagree, but you're open to learning from them. I think that's what it looks like to be humble, to be other-oriented. And that does not mean, you know, in any sense losing your convictions or softening what you believe to be true. But it's actually learning the discipleship skill, which I think is Jesus's major virtue, which is his capacity to speak truth with love in a kind of holy way that was so well boundaried, but kept inviting people who were excluded in and kept frustrating people who were controlled by that pride. So I think, yeah, it, you know, I even see it in Romans 1. That's what Paul does in Romans 1 is he, he, he uses this kind of prideful Jewish discourse that the Gentiles can't be justified in Christ, and he turns it on its head. So he uses the law against those who were holding the law over people's heads 
to humble them. <laughs> I think one of the ways is, and I was kind of tweeting about this today, is like having friends that disagree with you is a sign of humility because you, you will every day <laughs> bump up against an uncomfortable moment and you'll have to choose in yourself to not to get angry or zealously override that person, but actually create space for them. And sometimes even because of that, people have come to know Jesus Christ because I've created that space of humility and tried to make them a Christian or they're just, they can sense it and they want, they want in. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Mark, how about you? Yeah. As a psychologist, we, we tend to promote what we call cognitive complexity, where you, it involves seeing through the eyes of the other, but just having a little bit more flexibility around how you hold the things that you hold. So I think maybe because we, we see families, we work with churches, so you, you're sitting down in the same room with a family where they're disagreeing with each other, helping them see through the eyes of their teenager, helping the teenagers see through the eyes of their mother. And so there's different approaches that we take to sort of facilitate that. But that would be a, a virtue, a value that I would come into this. I'd agree with David on humility. That the way that I talk about it with my students that I'm mentoring is what we would refer to as intellectual humility. And we would begin with the question, you know, what is this author getting right? What, what have they landed on here? What has God brought to their attention, to my attention, that's right about their argument before we get to what's wrong? And so most people are trained, I think, or just pick up. You go for the jugular, you go for what their, their mistake, you, you knock them down, you keep them down. I have not found that to be a very helpful posture to take in these conversations, but to really give people credit where credit is due, to realize that God is at work. I have a follow-up about that. I mean, when you talk about approaches that are actually helpful, Mark, that, that presumes that there's a goal toward which we are aiming, how would you describe that goal that you, you want to, you know, form people into intellectual humility for what? For what purpose? Well, I think there's some wisdom in just being able to acknowledge that you could be wrong. I could be wrong about some of the things that I hold to be true. So, you, so in a sense, you hold things loosely. Now, there's things that if I really thought I was wrong, I'd be not doing what I'm doing. I'd be studying something else, or I'd be pretty careful about what I would publish or produce. But even if you're pretty strongly convinced that you're right about something, you could be wrong. <laughs> so there's an element here that there is a true north. I do, I do think there are true things out there and they're accessible to us. They're, God gave us the ability to understand these things. In many cases, he revealed these things to us. And so to have some confidence in that is important. But that doesn't mean he hasn't revealed other things to other people through general revelation and other ways in which he's spoken through his word to them and the Holy Spirit's impressed on them other things. So we need to be open to those things. So the end is, I guess, finding that true north, finding that what is true, realizing that we might be describing the same thing with different terms. We might be landing in different places. Those, those are all the things that I would take into consideration. And if I could add another thing that's been super important, you know, as a person that speaks from a side B perspective, which I'm sure we'll define later, but it, I think there's a constant sense in which sexuality and gender are related to a mystery. That means that 
there's knowledge we can have of a mystery and we can have convictions about what that mystery means. And that's really like ethics, you know? But a mystery is also something that's like unsearchably deep and never ends. Kind of like the ocean floor, like when do you touch it? You can't really like, you wouldn't have the oxygen to get to the deepest point. <laughs> no, it's just, it's endless. And having an approach where you see human sexuality and gender as a mystery rather than a fait accompli or a kind of concluded ethic that's just easily read in, a, in the scriptures is really important. And the, the second element of that I'd say is that sexuality and gender are theodicy issues or questions. What do I mean by theodicy? Like, they're really about the question, how could God be good if he allows people to have gender incongruence or desires for towards the same sex, which go against the created order, and then punish people for that? There's a sense in which that doesn't really make sense just tacitly in our human wrestle. And however you end up ethically concluding, recognizing it's not just an ethical question, but also a theodicy question, mm -hmm. I think it's a huge development I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing in the church, particularly and in Christian spaces, because I think we've treated it as just purely ethical and, and, and not had that other side, which is that we haven't had a humane approach to, to people. And that's caused a lot of damage and a whole culture war, which has not been an ideal environment to be LGBTQI plus or just a human being who has faith or no faith. Yeah, thank you for drawing that out. That's helpful. I'm wondering, David, if you could tell us or describe to us what it means to queer something that's queer theology or, you know, I think it's maybe people are hearing that now. What does that mean? And, and what do we benefit in that process? What, what do we gain? So my doctorate title is Queering the Queer, so I should know the answer to this question. <laughs> I started out with a really, really clear definition of what it meant to queer, which is kind mm -hmm. of to destabilize something for the mm -hmm. sake of seeing otherness that has been covered over by a certain norm. So it could be, you know, marriages between a man and a woman. Well, there's tons of situations in human existence where, you know, marriage or sex it doesn't happen between a man and a woman, where desires, different bodies do not configure to that easily. And so the queer theology really has been founded on a kind of queering of the traditional sexual ethic of marriage being between a man and a woman in, in the church. And my thesis is queer the queer. I'm trying to destabilize that as the norm of what queer means. And to say, well, what about what that querying has covered over? <laughs> what about the gay celibate Christian or the transgender person who doesn't necessarily want to go through gender reassignment surgery or the detransitioner or the person who's gone through, you know, reassignment surgery, but sees that differently than just like this total success? What about those bodies? What about those experiences? Are they not queer? I think they've become highly queer. I think in some sense, being gay and celibate is more queer than being in a gay marriage today. There's a whole commodified commercial arena that supports that choice. The pharmaceutical industry, you know, has a vested interest in certain things as well, which I think I don't think I go into, but in a sense, it's a resistance to power. Queering is a resistance to power, taking your body saying you can't have control over it. 
And in some sense, I think that's quite Christian because the Holy Virgins of the fourth century were like, hey, pagan culture, this is what like, living for Christ looks like. Actually, a woman's value goes beyond just her belonging to the patria and having children and repopulating the Roman Empire. A woman has value in and of herself as a holy virgin. And that was very different to the pagan holy virgin cults before. There's a very different sense in which that was almost like proto-feminist movement. So yeah, I think queering is that general destabilization of a norm to see a body or another, an otherness that's not being seen by a certain structure of power. That's really academic. I think some people just use queer to mean kind of fun and camp and, and kind of spicy and fabulous. There's so many different definitions. And I think one of the things about queer is it's, it's, it's kind of always changing and transmuting itself. It's never kind of stable. But I think that's kind of important for things like systematic theology, which are very like based on trying to like hold down the truth, who is God and who is man. It's like queering things can sometimes help bring up treasure we haven't seen in the systematic process of doing theology. So I think I value it. I don't think it's something that like a particular group owns. I think it's like a one way of thinking that can help us renew the church. So queerness also needs to be directed towards holiness. But I think that's probably the next question I have is how does queerness lead towards holiness and not towards just deconstruction? And, and I think that's the Christian question we need to ask. Fascinating. Well, we are in the thick of it. We're talking about what it means to be human. We're talking about sexuality. And we'd love to know from the both of you, what do your disciplines show you about the connection between our humanity and our sexuality? What are we talking about when we use the term sexuality? Are we talking about how we identify ourselves when we introduce ourselves to someone? Are we talking about the fact that human beings are sensual beings? Are we talking about desire? What do your disciplines tell you about this connection between what it means to be human and sexuality? Mark, can we start with you? Sure. So I, I tend to think about this, and I'm drawing here on my mentor's work, Stan Jones, who's written about this. I tend to think about our sexuality at least in three layers. So I think in more conservative Christian circles, we tend to focus on acts or behaviors. But I think I would want to start more with more with eros, more with a longing for completion in the other. And uh, that that's at every level, including the physical. And, and so there is this, in this longing for completion, ultimately, I think that's meant to be instructive to us. Just as we have hunger and we eat, it's instructive to us that when we fast, we remind ourselves that we will only be fulfilled when we partake of the bread of heaven, who is Jesus Christ himself. And so our sexual desires, the, the, this longing for completion will only be satisfied in our relationship with God, in the consummation of the marriage between the, the bride of Christ and Christ. And so when we talk about genital sexual intimacy, we're approximating something along those lines, but it's never going to be what it will be in, in the consummation in the future. So we begin, I think, with eros and longing for completion. So that's erotic sexuality. A second layer would be gender sexuality, which is being made male or female. 
And of course, there's exceptions to that, but those exceptions, in my view, don't create a continuum of sexuality. They point in the direction of the norms the, of being male or female. And that's connected to erotic sexuality. For most people, that longing for completion is with the, that other is the other sex, but it's not true for everybody. What's shared is the longing for completion. That's a very human experience of sexuality. So two layers there, erotic sexuality, gender sexuality, and then the third would be genital sexuality, which is comprised of acts. But we would never want to think about that as our sexuality. It would be very much very reductionistic to think of us in those terms. So I like Lewis Smead's, the late Lewis Smead's comment about this, that sex is not what we do, it's who we are. I think that's a better starting point for the conversation. And I think these three layers of sexuality, not that they're exhaustive, are the angle of entry I would take into the conversation, both as a Christian and as a psychologist. Mm. Helpful layering. Yeah, David, would you like to add anything to that? Oh, oh gosh, it's so lovely <laughs> to listen to Mark because it's just like, oh, he understands. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm often going around, I mean, David's always talking about eros, 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 eros. We need to regain eros. And of course, you say that in a kind of popular setting and people think you mean, as Mark said so eloquently, like genital intimacy uh, rather than the idea that actually desire, the unit, the desire to be one with the good, the kind of drive to be one with the good. Sarah Coakley calls it this propulsive movement of the heart towards the good. In the fall, theologically has been affected. And so when we're navigating the sensuality of our bodies and our embodied finitude, our finiteness, our smallness, as Augustine says, we're drawn towards nothingness naturally. So then we sin. Paul calls this the flesh. So what we need is almost this other energization of the spirit to come in and take our erotic energies, our erotic drives, and turn them towards a different object in worship. And that's actually the whole journey of the heart, what Augustine calls the pilgrimage of Christian faith. We receive by faith this special kind of deposit of the love of God, which has the power to take us from being oriented towards nothingness and sin and death, towards life, eternal life, overflowing abundant life that Jesus came to give us. So I think there's a sense in which eros can lead towards death, but the reason God created it was to lead us towards him. And Sarah quickly says, you know, the only way that desire can be safely acknowledged and adjudicated is if we recognize it first, most fundamentally is desire for God. So every good reflects God and everything we're drawn to by desire needs to be acknowledged as coming from God. And when we do that in prayer and in worship and in our lives, like just as we're living, it's actually a beautiful thing to God. And sometimes we make mistakes and our desires get disordered, but ultimately Eros is a good thing. And I think it's Pope Benedict who writes in Deus Caritas Est, you know, that Eros is ennobled into agape, that sense in which it reorders Eros towards its right object. And then it becomes such a beautiful, wonderful thing. So really the goal is that kind of erotic sainthood. That's what God wants from a relationship with us. God is also erotic. He desires us to be one with us. And so I think it comes back to like the central doctrine of union with Christ. That's why we have these desirous bodies. That's why we're finite. It's kind of to set up a love story between us and God. And he's made us with these bodies that respond 
with very deep and strong desires. So I think it's a, ultimately desires an awesome thing, and one of the signs we're made in the image of God. Mm. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for for that. I think it starts to make clear some of the ways the current conversation is not necessarily framed in the most helpful way uh, based on the way you both are describing sexuality. So I'm wondering if you could give us some of your observations about how you see the current conversation being framed and and what do you maybe think is helpful about that or or what do you wish it might look like instead? And you mentioned side B, David, are, that's kind of one possible framework. Others just about conduct, for example. So what are some ways that you see it being framed and, and what do you think is good or bad about that? Mark, do you want to go first? I'd be so curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I'm not very content with how things are being framed, but I, I have to admit I, I'm not sure the best way to frame it. I mean, the side A, side B conversation David mentioned earlier is important for Christians to understand because younger people in Christian circles often do frame it that way. So I probably am a little more pragmatic about helping people, especially in church settings, Christian organizational settings, understand how younger people frame things in Christian communities. So like, I'll just go through just briefly. So this came out of a ministry called Bridges Across the Divide, which was creating a dialogue between people of faith, Christian faith who disagreed with each other about this. And they were trying to use language that wouldn't show their hand or frame it in a way that was disparaging to the other group. So they wanted to use letters to designate theological positions. So a side A person would say that same-sex behavior may be morally permissible in the right kind of relationship, like a relationship like marriage. But that group tends to affiliate with the mainstream of the LGBTQ community and draw on a lot of the qualities of that as a culture. Side B would say that such behavior is morally impermissible, sexual behavior is morally impermissible between the same sex. But they do also affiliate with some aspects of the mainstream LGBTQ culture, like language, like they would be comfortable saying I'm gay or I'm celibate gay or I'm queer. And then side C tends to view themselves as kind of not sure where they land theologically. So some people have used confused or just kind of like in in process or kind of figuring this out, weighing these things. Side Y kind of follows after side X. Side X actually says, not only is the behavior impermissible, but the attractions are impermissible, and I need to change my attractions. And this group would disidentify with the mainstream LGBTQ community as a culture, trying to aim in the direction of heterosexuality. And then side Y is very close to that, but they're not as committed to the idea that their attractions or orientations would change. But how do I live with enduring same-sex sexuality if it weren't to change? But I still have the same moral concerns about the attractions, the orientation, and also disidentifying with the mainstream of the LGBTQ community. So not using language like gay to describe their experience. I hear more language like I have identity in Christ. But I always point out that all the other groups would say they have identity in Christ as well. But this group would pair that with the decision not to use language within that community. Now, I don't use this to describe my own position because I'm not part of the community. This is used by the community, for the community to have this dialogue with each other. But it's good for others who observe this to recognize this is important language for that community. I think one of the downsides of it is it can come away as a little bit of a buffet of of things that you, you know, what, what are you drawn to? What's your understanding of this? And so it's 
in a diverse and pluralistic culture, it kind of makes sense, but then it can sort of give the idea that there's not a true North here as well. And there's not really something that's actually true about, about these views, but I do think it does facilitate better dialogue. And so I, there's, I think this, the upside has been more helpful than the downside, but I'm not sure it's the best way to frame these conversations. So that, I'll just leave that there. I think what Mark's saying is brilliant. Other issue I have is even the word celibate or single doesn't really work to describe the deeper theology of eros we've discussed. You know, there are so many terms that we have to use because we don't have much else. And this is one of the things that spurred me on to do the doctorate was I just think, where is the deep research on these topics? Why was this not here 30 years ago? <laughs> I think what I want to see more is courage to love people of a different view, courage to do the deeper work and sacrifice something to take it forward. And obviously not everyone can sacrifice. Like I think part of my life is that I've had privilege. I had parents that could send me to a good school. They supported me with my sexuality. They supported me through the various different ways in which I chose to identify with the various positions or ethics on sexuality. And I was able then to come to Oxford. And so I think we need to serve more than like claim space and have that position, that kind of positionality. I wanted to give an, just a quick story to illustrate. I'm a storyteller and <laughs> I always find it hard to do anything but tell stories. Mm. But I think this really illustrates what I would like to see and how I would like to see things shift. So I, I had a friend who's a scholar at... Well, she wasn't my friend at the beginning. She, she was side a Christian, gay Christian, lesbian, and she had been ordained in the PCA USA. And I was this kind of gay celibate figure who had just written a book. And so we were in the seminar together in theology faculty, and we looked across the room at each other. And there was just this deep, almost like hatred towards each other or suspicion. <laughs> And I remember even saying disparaging things about her to friends and she did the same. And we were both just like resisting each other's presence. And we didn't have a capacity to like have solidarity or to break that pain or trauma that we both had in different ways about each other until nine months into that seminar. And we decided to get waffles and coffee and sit down and I think what was amazing to me was when I just chose to let her tell me her story like, and some of the things she told me about her upbringing and what she'd gone through and why she just had to be side A, it kind of broke me. And I was like, wow, she's not some kind of betrayer of the faith that has compromised truth. She's someone who's like genuinely wrestling and trying as a human being to work, work it through and not lose her faith. And that was so amazing. And that, that created a bridge for me towards her. And then I told her my story and what had happened to me in the pub and the Holy Spirit coming upon me and this kind of more Pentecostal charismatic experience of God that was very, very real and tangible and something that I felt I had to give up my sexuality for as we have to give up every part of our lives and let God speak into that and release it to him. And she was like, wow, you make me want to be side B, you know? <laughs> and so we actually had this kind of beautiful exchange and we built a friendship and we held on to that friendship. And we often message each other and pray for each other. But that, that ethic of friendship and 
learning to hear each other, I think isn't just important for us, it's important for bishops, for leaders, for the political world to learn. So yeah, that, that's, that's been a story of, for me, where I've come to from a more defensive to more open space. I have to say, it is really hard to have that openness. There are days where it's taxing and you can only do so much and you're finite and you need to also be with people that agree with you and have a safe community that supports your decision. That's really important too. Thanks for sharing that story and your experience. It's a very encouraging picture, I think. I'm wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that and then we could also turn to you, Mark, in terms of what what the solidarity or care or service amongst others looks like for people outside the community, inside the community? What is it that you want people to really know or to practice to help sort of get deeper into the conversation and also maybe, you know, heal the conversation? Yeah, because I think sometimes if we were to introduce ourselves as, for example, side X or side Y, it, it maybe introduce a difficulty for us to look for true north together when we have the kinds of suspicions that you narrated. So how do we pursue solidarity when you all are doing the work that you're doing and people know about it? How, how do you do that? Well, I think one of the ways that you can have safe solidarity is knowing what fellowship is for you. I think they kind of go together. Like fellowship for me is like, I do need the person to at least, an element of fellowship. I mean, I can still have fellowship with my side A friends. They still believe like Orthodox confession of Christianity. They believe Jesus rose from the dead. So there's some sense of fellowship there, but it's maybe not the same intensity that I can have. And just creating that sense of security that you're not like compromising your holiness and where you're yoking yourself in your Christian faith by having points at which you can find human commonality in those di- those differences of opinion. And I think that is what solidarity looks like, is finding those bridges. Well, what do you do if you're straight? How can you have solidarity with a gay side A, gay person, if you have more traditional like evangelical ethics? And I think, you know, one of the beautiful things recently, a pastor invited me to have Indian food with him. And I was just, you know, he's quite a prominent pastor in the city here. And Honestly, I was kind of petrified because I'm like, what horrible, like, lurking issue is there? You know, really, he just wanted to be my friend and just wanted to have a meal with me. And we're both human. And he told me about a personal tragedy that he had in his life with something that was going on for him that was very profound and very hard. And there was a lot of overlap between kind of sexuality and what he was going through. And I think every one of us in the kind of fallen world that we live in has something I'm not saying you have to divulge that straight away. <laughs> That's a bit weird. But like, <laughs> you might, you, you, you can find those places of vulnerability, but there needs to be a kind of safety to trust each other in that. And I think that's why like having meals and sitting down together and like finding, I don't know, playing a sport or doing something that doesn't like have to do with those questions can be really important. Mm-hmm. Like to, to, to build that bridge to begin with. So sometimes I think solidarity just looks like going and kicking a football with your friend or, I don't know, reading a book in a book club. In a sense, solidarity is a missional thing, if you want to put it in Christianese. Because I think one of the things I love about the gospel is God showed incarnational solidarity to us, still sinners, by dying on the cross in Christ. And 
that in some sense we must always be driven by that because God did it in Christ to us. But then also there's the temple holiness and, you know, Tom Wright and T. Wright and I are friends. And he said to him, you know, the hardest thing in the New Testament is that those two things are incredibly hard to bring together, like the calling for holiness and being set apart and the like (laughs) incarnational solidarity of the cross. So yeah, that's why I would say theologically we're aiming for is those two to come together and that can only really happen in love and relationship. Wow. Mark, you have been writing for so long on this topic and you're very well known about it. What lessons have you learned or what experiences have you had on building this kind of fellowship or solidarity or bringing mission and holiness together? Yeah, I mean, I, I have dialogues and in different circles. I mean, I, sometimes I build bridges at, among secular psychologists at the American Psychological Association. Other times I'm working with churches to build greater understanding and, and sometimes get a little bit of criticism on both sides. I would say with my secular peers, a lot of the commonalities are identifying a superordinate goals that we can work on, that we share, and you do that through research and ongoing dialogue. So I've been part of a dialogue group from the division I'm a part of an APA that studies religion and spirituality. We dialogue with the division that represents sexual orientation and gender diversity. And we, we've been dialoguing with their, their working group for over 10 years. And that just, you, there's no substitute for just logging time with each other and committing to that time and bringing all of who you are on every side into those conversations. So they know that I'm a, would identify as a Christian or maybe evangelical Christian, and they would identify with from different perspectives as well. And we would be able to talk about those things. And again, research is the common denominator for those more science-based conversations, but there's real people in the room, real people having these conversations. Mm-hmm. And so you never look past that. I would say in Christian circles, it's been similar, like on my, in my research lab, as I've run this institute for many years, Students don't have to agree with me to do research with me, just do work together. So we, I work with students of all different perspectives on these topics, and I try to model for them how to hold their views with that intellectual humility we talked about and, and just build the relationship of trust and, and goodwill towards each other, uh, to pray for each other, much like the experiences I think David's had. And you know, so those have always been good. We've often done things outside of the research to sort of build a sense of cohesion. We do spiritual retreats annually. In my past role, we worked on projects in the community. We did walks against depression and suicidality because the LGBTQ community is overrepresented in those groups, also in homelessness. So we did some volunteering with a group that was working on reducing homelessness in the community I was in in Virginia. So there's a lot of things like that that really help build a sense of community and trust. We did something similar for an HIV AIDS foundation in, back in Virginia, and they were very skeptical about it. They had us do some things just to see if we were really serious about, about volunteering our time with them. And they made us do things that would have, they pushed us on our, on if we were, if we were really going to be a part of this by having us do some volunteer activities that they do, but that Christians might not be drawn to, you know, so, but that was, it was a good test of, are we serious? Are we going to stay in a relationship, be a sustained presence, or are we a one-off? And so you've got to commit in these conversations 
or you'll just never make it. Uh, you'll just burn out or you'll be caught as you're not, you're not really invested in this. Mm. So longevity, steadfastness in the, in the relationship is mm. pretty critical. Thank you for, for that. Maybe for the last question, I'd love to get you both to elaborate on that for churches, for church leaders and, and our ministry leaders. How can we how can we listen to people different from us or people in different communities to to, to see the gifts and the challenges and, and what are the challenges that that the church needs to respond to to also in, encourage and build up people in different communities? I'll start with a theological point. Who do we worship? We worship a God whose kingship looks like being crucified on a first century torture device. <laughs> like, if you just take away for a moment the familiarity of that, because we're all Christian, and actually really process that, that means that the gifts and the anointing and the power of God are going to come in cruciform packages. I was just at church this weekend and a lovely friend of mine, Hannah said to me, you know, I have to be in crutches my whole life. And I just said to her, ah, the glory of God is coming. <laughs> you know, and she said, amen, brother. You know, and mm -hmm. instead of, oh my gosh, you poor thing, that's so horrible. And yes, there will be moments where someone needs that. There's a sense in which suffering or these difficulties, these are actually gifts first and we need to have this kind of cruciform lens that when we look at the difficulties of life we actually go yes the glory of god you know jesus says to the, everyone trying to question why the man is blind you know in the gospels and he says for the glory of god to be revealed mm -hmm. and so i think if we can train our sight and train our expectation to be different when we see suffering and actually hold it within the hope of the resurrection. So hold the LGBTQI plus thing, which can be really hard and has like massive pastoral burdens associated with it and difficulties existentially, but see that God will bring glory through that. I think that is one thing I really, really, really want to see more of in the church. There's some mystery that God's glory comes through across. And I think until we get that, we won't be able to see the gift. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, here's what I part of what I see is that in the world I'm in, in a lot of evangelicalism in North America, at least in the United States, just even language we're having right now, just talking about people identifying as gay becomes a problem. And so churches are responding to that as though that was ministry to this population. I find that to be so unhelpful. I'm not saying there's never any questions to ask about identity labeling, identity first presentations and things like that. But to think you're ministering to someone by doing that is, is it's above the surface kind of a surface kind of ministry. You think of like an iceberg and you want to go into the depth of ministry. It's the more fundamental questions people ask. Am I, am I wanted here or this faith community? And what does God think about me? How do I navigate these questions of faith and sexual and gender identity? But it's also important not to just continue it to think that ministry is is reaching out a hand and and down to people in this community, but to see them as bringing something to the body of Christ. When we did that study of 300 celibate gay Christians, we asked them about this, and they talked about a lot of things that they see themselves as gifted in, like attuned to the marginalized within society. Like they're they're attuned to it. They see it because they're there. Like those types of insights. One person talked about 
just bringing depth and substance into conversations in his small group, because in their church group, when they talk about things that matter, they've given a lot of thought to their sexuality and their faith that just takes them to a deeper place for all of the body of Christ to go deeper. Like that level of kind of substantive engagement is a gift to bring to the church. And there were like six, seven, eight other things that, and if you don't start there with a place of mutual respect, you're, why would you expect to get a hearing? Why would you expect people to be grateful for your ministry to them when you have such a, a derogatory starting point for their own personhood and, and gifts and the way God's working in their, in their midst? So anyway, those are some, just a couple of additional thoughts I'd add to that. Wow. I mean, Lord have mercy on church spaces where the starting point is derogation. I mean, this has been so helpful for us to think about what it's going to take to really commit to meaningful ministry to people with gifts in whom the Spirit of God is at work, longing for connection, and ultimately the true north in Jesus Christ. So I want to say thank you to both David and Mark for being on this podcast today. This has been so valuable. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Theology And, a podcast of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Thanks so much for listening. You can check us out on social media. And visit us on the web at theologyandpodcast.com. 